Uh, this morning we're going to continue along the lines of what I did a couple of weeks ago, uh, talking about villains. Every good story has a villain, uh, there's usually a hero as well, and I confess to you that when I watch a good film, I, I just, I, I love villains, I really do, I just, you know, if there's a good James Bond villain, you know, I'm always interested in who's going to play that part and stuff, and you know, you have characters, don't you, who come along. So, you know, Star Wars, you know, we talked a bit about that. And I just, I'm a Darth Vader fan, you know. I, can I just, am I alone in all of this? Anybody like a Darth Vader? Yeah, Suzanne likes a Darth Vader. That's good, okay. I know you do, Williams. You're just, you're my hero anyway, so there we go, you know. And you've got, um, I don't know, who's that? Jafar. Come on. Yeah, Jafar. Um, who's this? Somebody says me, I'm going to hit you. <laughs> Who's that? Ursula. Ursula. That's right. You know, these are great villains. The villains of the piece. They're absolutely brilliant. And you've got... Who's that? Scar. He's a great villain. He really is. He's a nasty piece of work, he is. And, uh, mm, what about him? Go on. Magneto. That's right. Who's this? Green Goblin. Green Goblin, absolutely. Did you get that one, Val? You didn't know that one? No, okay. Who's that? My, he's the ultimate villain. It's such a good part played by Heath Ledger. And that's right, isn't it, Nigel? Heath Ledger? Yeah, thank you. He's my film critic in the corner there. Um, just a superb role. Villains! The villain of the piece. And it's brilliant to see how the story adapts around the villain. And... Uh, I, I just started to talk a bit about that the other week. Do, do you remember now? Has this got you back in the groove of it? Boys, you with me? You okay? Right? So, um, we also talked about this guy. Now, who plays that part? Ralph Fiennes. He was interviewed on TV the other day. He doesn't look anything like that. I was amazed. He doesn't have a nose. But in real life, he does. He is Weird. Spooky and weird. He really is. He is a villain that makes me want to go behind the settee. He really is. So we talked, we started to talk about heroes and villains. And we're always talking about the heroes of the Bible. And that's a good thing. But what about the villains? They never get much attention. The thing is, I think you can actually learn a lot from the villains. Not about how to be a villain yourself, but how maybe not to fall into some of the traps they did. And last time we were together, we looked at the devil. Now, he's probably the ultimate villain of the Bible. And we unpacked a little bit about his story and noted that this kind of cartoon character that we tend to think in our minds is the devil is anything but the truth. The devil's a very real being, and he doesn't look anything like that. And he's not a cheeky little chappy. He's not some Tasmanian devil that uh, you see on the cartoon, uh, he's vicious, nasty, and he's out to get us. And we unpacked that a bit, and we learnt how to come against the devil, how to uh, work in such a way that he doesn't gain a foothold in our lives. So this morning, I want to carry this theme on. I want to look at another villain in the Bible with you, and uh, his name is Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is an incredible guy. How many of you have heard of Nebuchadnezzar? 
Okay? Fine. That's great. So I wonder how much you know about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a very powerful king who lived about 500 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He ruled over what's known as the Babylonian Empire. And you can see from that map, this is a huge area. Now, this guy is very, very important in human history, and particularly in biblical history. In its time, there was nothing quite like the Babylonian Empire, and no one quite like its king, King Nebuchadnezzar. He commanded an incredibly powerful army. He ruled over a beautiful and prosperous city, and he presided over, as you can see on that map, an expansive empire. One of uh, the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Merthyr Tydfil. The Hanging Gardens of Babylon. You've heard of them? Yeah. So part of his his empire was constructed during his, his reign. And long story short, okay, Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful human being of his time. He's an incredibly important person if you're going to understand biblical history and human history, and if you're going to understand just what a villain is like, because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about people being villains. And Nebuchadnezzar was a villain. What was villainous acts? Well, where do you begin? He's an amazing guy. I mean, this guy is wicked. He, um, he killed the king of Judah, and looted Jerusalem. So he took all the treasures, all the money, took everything out of Jerusalem, and he took the Jews, and he led them into captivity, and used them as uh, slave labor. Uh, Then he installed a puppet king, somebody that he just manipulated, a guy called Zedekiah, put him on the throne in Jerusalem. Zedekiah got a bit, 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 bit big for his boots, and decided, oh, I'm not going to listen to this but anymore. I'm going to do my own thing. And so what did uh, Nebuchadnezzar do? Well, he came along. He killed each of Zedekiah's sons in front of him and then gouged out his eyes. That's the stuff of Hollywood, this is. I'm telling you, you want to watch a good film, this would make a brilliant one. After that, he completely destroyed the city. Destroyed the temple, everything. Nothing was left. Now, other than all of that, he's a pretty nice guy, actually. <laughs> So I want to take you on a little bit of a a trip this morning. You've got a Bible at the end of your pew. Maybe you've got a Bible app on your phone. Why don't you open it up? Let's let's go to the book of Daniel. And we're going to look in the book of Daniel at chapter 4. And Daniel chapter 4 helps us understand about this guy. This is what Daniel 4 verse 28 starts with. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar 12 months later as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? You know, he's, he's, he's the guy, he's the foreman of Barrett Holmes, you know, coming and build a brand new estate. And he's looking out over the estate and he's going, Well, flip me, this is pretty good. He's very, very happy with what he's accomplished. He is enjoying it. He is basking in it. Walking on the roof of his palace, looking out. Maybe a little bit too proud. Let's continue. Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. 
This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from the people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Now, I was out in Cardiff last night and there were lots of girls walking around and they looked a bit like that, actually. <laughs> so, this is... I forgot to tell you, by the way, this is one of the weirdest stories in the whole Bible, okay? But, but it is. What the heck is going on here? Well, this is a story all about pride. Just get that in there a minute. This is all about a guy's pride. Nebuchadnezzar was proud. Proud of who he was. Proud of all that he'd accomplished. Proud of his skills and his abilities. He was full of self-importance. And God, God, God didn't get a lucky. And God didn't appreciate his attitude. And basically, as we've just read, he caused Neb to lose his marbles. And he literally believed he was an animal. And we see him spending his days out in the field eating grass. He has gone Woohoo! Loco. Why? Why? Why did? Why did God do this? Well, we get to that in a moment. But for now, I, I just want to explore this thing of pride with you, because pride's a real. The Bible says a lot about pride. It it calls pride a sin, something that is counter to what God wants. Last time we talked about the fall of Lucifer, Satan, the devil, how he led a third of the angels, do you remember, in a rebellion against God. And, and in fact, what his sin was as well was the sin of pride. He was more interested in himself. He became obsessed with himself. He thought he was amazing and, and, he, and he wanted to be equal with God. So the very first sin we see being uh, carried out in, in the universe is, is the sin of pride. The book of Proverbs is full of incredible wisdom on how we should live a, a good life. And here's an interesting comment the book of Proverbs makes about pride there in chapter 16. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The idea there is that pride is dangerous because it often causes destruction. A haughty spirit is another way, basically, of saying a prideful attitude. And you notice it comes before a fall. In other words, a major contributor to life's big mistakes is usually pride. Think about it. You thought you could handle it. You thought you were the one who would be able to get away with it. You didn't think it could happen to you. You're better. You're stronger. You're smarter. That's pride. 
And according to Proverbs, pride comes before a fall, before a big mistake. How often have I thought I could handle something, only to find out that I couldn't, and all I was doing was I felt pride. The first thing we have to understand about pride is that it's really dangerous. It's dangerous because it makes you incredibly vulnerable to bad decisions. And a series of bad decisions can lead to a pretty mucked up life. I want to show you another, even more disturbing verse about pride. It comes from the book of James. James is a bit like the New Testament version of Proverbs. And James has some incredible things to say. And this is what he says about pride. God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. Now, that's a pretty startling verse, because... We always think of God being for us. God is the God of love, isn't he? Jesus gave his life for us. What's this business of opposition? But that's in the Bible. That's true. Think about that. God is literally against prideful people. He hates pride. It's a really big deal for him. The word opposes carries with it the idea of of a battle, actually. If you're a prideful person, God's literally in a battle against you. And he will stand in the way. And that's not a good thing. So pride's a pretty big deal, isn't it? It's a huge issue. We should probably define exactly what we're talking about then. What exactly is pride? Let's start by defining what it's not. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding, particularly in Christian circles, about what pride is or isn't. Listen, pride is not having self-esteem. It's not wrong to have self-esteem. In other words, pride is not, you know, if, if you happen to be good at something, pretending that you're not. You know, it's okay to be secure in who you are and the gifts and abilities that God has given you. It's not prideful to have courage. It's not prideful to speak up about what you believe or even to believe that you maybe are the one that's going to take this penalty. Because actually, you're the best person to take it. That's not prideful. Pride is when you believe you don't need anybody else. You can do this by yourself. Pride is believing you don't need advice. Who are you to give me advice? How much do you think that way when you've talked to your parents? Or when you talk to your pastor? Pride is believing your, your teammates are idiots, your colleagues are idiots. As if you can do it all by yourself. Pride, pride is ignoring the boundaries that sometimes God has set in place because he loves us and he wants us to live in a certain way. Pride is believing, well, you don't need God. That's that's proud. In in Nebuchadnezzar's case, that's what he was saying. Look what I've done. God reminds him, who put you in place, pal? Are you the one who produced the good things in your life? Pride is a dangerous thing. You don't think you need God. And this verse tells us you need to be very careful Because God opposes that kind of attitude. See, God won't force himself on you. If you aren't willing to let him in, he'll honor your request. It'll be to your own detriment. 
Back in the book of James, that verse is so important because you notice the second half of it. That's the counter to pride, isn't it? Look at it. Shows favour to the humble. That's, that's beautiful. You might be sitting there thinking, what's that all about then? God has favourites? Not exactly, but it simply means that the humble are the ones who willingly acknowledge that they need God. They're the people who are willing to accept the favour that God offers. And God shows his favour to anybody who accepts it. Doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter what your background is, doesn't matter what family you've come from, where you live. If you humble yourself before God, he will show you favour. Problem is that prideful people don't want God's help. Don't think they need it. The humble acknowledge that they need God. And they need his favour. So maybe we just need to explore a little bit what it means to be humble then, because there's a lot of misunderstanding about that. Again, what doesn't it mean? Humility doesn't mean that you think you're a terrible person. Oh, woe is me. It doesn't mean that you suck at everything. You can be humble while recognising that you are beautiful, that you are talented, that you are gifted, that you are good at your job. That's okay. It's okay. Humility is embracing your role in God's story. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because if you think of human history like a film, it's a pretty long film, there'll be several breaks to go to the toilet and stuff, but think of, think of life. Think of God's uh, human history as a film. So who's the main character in this film? In human history, who's the main Is it you? Is, is that what you think? Do you think you are the main character in this, in this film? M- maybe it's me, then, if it's not you. M- maybe, maybe, maybe it's Nebuchadnezzar, then, because he's a pretty villainous kind of guy. He's, maybe it's the devil, you'd want to say. Oh, he, he's, he's the main character. No, the main character in the bigger story of human history is God. That's the main character. In the, he's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the redeemer, restorer. The story of human history is actually all about God. And to have humility is to recognize that. And to recognize, actually, we're just part of the support characters. We don't get major billing. We're the ones that come up in tiny letters at the end of the film. And you're trying to look closely. It's God's story. This life, this life isn't about you or me. It's about God. Humility is recognizing that. It's recognizing that God has had a huge role in who you actually are. The Bible tells us that you were knit together in your mother's womb and that you are wonderfully, awesomely made and fashioned in the image of God. That life, the life you have today, is actually his precious gift to you. All that you have, all the blessings that you enjoy, the friendships you have, the work, the employment, the bank account, overdrawn as it may be, okay. But it's God's blessing. Humility is recognizing that actually I owe it all to him. Humility is recognizing that you lot are God's gift to me. 
my friends, my sisters and brothers. That's God's favor to me. Just like I am his favor to you. Where did we get off thinking that it's all about me? That's the world we live in, isn't it? The world is full of selfish pride. Me, myself, and I. That's the motto of the world in which we live. Let's go back to Nebuchadnezzar for a minute. The ending of the story is pretty amazing. You know what it says? It's absolutely incredible. So, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Now, Nebuchadnezzar eventually embraced his role in God's story. Gave God top billing, recognized he'd been the villain, and he came back to God. You can hear the change in him, in the way he speaks about God. He recognizes that he is the support character in God's story. And here's the thing. I mean, what he went through was incredibly weird and ridiculous, wasn't it? But wouldn't you say it was good for him and good for his people in the long run? I mean, God restored him to his role as king, but he's now got a very, very different attitude. He's more of a servant, really. He recognizes that God deserves all the honor. God deserves top billing. It's God's favor on him. That he is the king and he has all these lovely things, this big empire. He recognizes life isn't all about him. I'd imagine he's a much better king during the latter part of his life. I mean, if I'd lived in Babylon in those days, I'd much preferred the older, more humble Nebuchadnezzar than the young, arrogant, prideful one. See, if you're prideful, God will humble you. But understand that it's the best thing for you. Nebuchadnezzar learned that the hard way. But you and I don't have to. Praise God. How can we become more humble? How can we get off the throne of our lives and just say to God, please, you take control. I've got two ideas I want to share with you as we close this morning. I think one of the things we could do a little bit more of is just look to give credit away. By that I mean, instead of taking or talking about how awesome you are, talk about how other people in your life are awesome. So I do it with preaching. 
one of the things that I was challenged about. When I was a young preacher, I uh, used to get people at the door saying, thank you so much, what a wonderful word. And I used to go, <laughs> yeah, thanks so And I can remember talking to Sarah about this and being really quite worried, recognised this was wrong. She had some brilliant words for me. She uses these words quite a lot with me. The fact you're worried about it is a good sign. And then you can begin to address it. And so one of the things, as perhaps you've heard me say, if you've ever said, that was a great sermon, I'll say, it's the Lord. And I'm not doing that in a false way. It's just that genuinely I've come to appreciate that it is the Lord working through me. And if I humbly allow myself to be the voice of God, the vehicle of God, the conduit through which God speaks, wow. And the opportunities I've had to preach all over the world are, are amazing, but it's all down to him. And the greatest privilege to be able to preach here on a Sunday. Truly. I recognize it's his favor. So what about you? What about in work? What about in work this week? What about giving some of the credit away? What about saying, do you know what, it's not just me. I've got, got a great bunch around me. I've got a great team. They're brilliant. You know, so-and-so did a great job. You know, you might not know this, but actually they did, they did all the statistical work in the background that you'll never see in this report. But actually, go and thank them as well. Give some of the credit away. Maybe, you know, you've had a great game. Maybe, maybe the team have done well. It's about recognising you've got teammates, isn't it? Recognising that you didn't do it all by yourself. You can try, you can run yourself ragged, you're the engine room in midfield and you're doing everything you can. You know what it's like, boys. But for the goalkeeper, but for the left back. It's about your teammates. It's about your colleagues. Give some of the credit away. Secondly, what about embracing your role in God's story? What about getting on board with that? What about recognizing that actually God is the main character? Begin to take time each day to recognize that it's not you. Why don't you, tomorrow morning, invite God to just come and be the main man? Invite him. To be the authority in your life. And then humbly place yourself under his authority and leadership. God, would you lead me today? Would you, would you help me to be a blessing in my work environment? As I stand before that class and as I teach them, Lord, help me be used by you for their benefit. Lord, as I, as I do my job, as I, I'm on the factory floor, as I'm a part of the assembly line, Lord, would, would you just help me? Lord, would you be with me? God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Nebuchadnezzar learned it the hard way. But we could go away from here this morning, resolving in our own minds, with God's help, to be more humble. And rather than being the villain of the piece, recognize that God's the hero, and we just serve him. What would happen if we all tried that?